Chris, just make sure we get turned on. We'll move along. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Thanks for being here. But believe it or not, I think that we'll actually finish this series at least by the last Sunday in September. I'm, I'm shooting that that be the last uh, of this series. So there is coming an end to it. Uh, you just thought the end would be when you heard the trumpet and you see the Lord coming back on the horse and you would say, well, I think Peter is probably finished with the uh, Sunday school class, but we better wait until next Sunday, you know, and the whole return of Christ has to be held up because we're not quite finished. Thank you for being here. I, and, and again, I know I say it regularly, but I genuinely mean it. You know, the primacy of our life is the word of God. How many of us would be saved today without having a knowledge, the presentation, some way the Holy Spirit communicated our need and God's provision, His existence and His provision and the work of Christ? How many of us would be saved without the Word of God active in our life? None of us. How many of us would know how to live, that whether we were living according to the will of God, without the Word of God? How many of us would be maturing? How many of us would be sharing the gospel? We're all hyped up about Alpha. That's fine. But it's the Word of God. And so thank you for being those who desire to know the Word, to uh, make the Word uh, prominent in your life. Uh, again, shake the bushes of the church. This room should be filled. Can you say amen? I'm sorry. And people say, well, you know, you shouldn't say that because those who are here, thank you for being here. Now, this room should be filled. Did I acknowledge both sides of that? Amen. Let's start. Father, Father, thank you. Father, this room may not be filled with people, but it's filled with your spirit. Father, and we are so thankful for that. Father, even if just one were here, your spirit would still be here and in as much ministry and power and anointing as you are today, as you are now. So, Father, thank you for opening the meaning and the understanding and the, the majesty of your word. Father, the majesty of this word is your means of declaring your majesty, your glory to us through this word. Father, thank you for giving us a better comprehension, seeing that this word is comprehensive from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of Revelation 22. Father, thank you for showing us that this is one word, one revelation, one move of your spirit flowing from the beginning through the ages until the end when time shall be no more. Father, thank you for this, Father. Build us up, encourage us, strengthen us. Father, cause this word to be inoculating us in greater sensibility and awareness of sin, Satan, the flesh, the world. And then, Father, giving us a sword of the, the sword of the Spirit, larger sword and sharper sword, so that when any of that opposition comes against us, we can take up the shield of faith and we can slay the opposition. Father, we want this because we need it, because you have declared your glory in us. And we want that to be declared fully, to the fullest extent, for each one of us individually and for this church corporately. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you 
for what you are doing and what you will continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we continue with what we saw last week. Remember, in the birth announcements of Jesus, and remember, we went through several of these birth announcements. If you weren't here, as I've said over and over again, and even if you were here, if you want a copy of the CD, they are available, I think, in the bookstore, or you can go online to do these things. I'm not sure how all that's done, but I know it can be done because I've been told it can be done that way. So last week, we saw that in the birth announcements of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised seed of the woman, God's Davidic king, has come. We saw that last week. That finally, after all the ages and after all the shadows and after all the prophecies and after all the move of God and after all the circumstances, after everything that God has been doing since Genesis 3, 6. Remember what Genesis 3, 6 says now? I've repeated it so many times, everybody should know it. Now the last three words, and he ate. That is a declaration that Adam sinned, and in Adam's sin, all of mankind fell because we were all collected in Adam, and we were all represented in Adam, so that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Now, you may think, well, you know, that's unfair. I don't think I would have sinned. Could any of us have been more innocent and more perfectly made than Adam? No. And he sinned. He sinned. And you know what's interesting? When you look at chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and then you look at the result in Genesis chapter 3, and we don't know this until we really move along, what is God really after in Genesis 1 and 2? What he's really after is the dis display of all of his purpose to be manifested in only one man, in only one man. And so he shows that Adam, a created man, cannot be that man. And so there's a revelation there about God and about God's Son and about the Holy Spirit that we don't begin to pick up until we begin to move through the Bible and see this revelation develop. So never think, well, this is what God wanted for Adam. And it is what God wanted for Adam. But God knows ahead of time what will be happening. But God's purpose is to show that His glory in man cannot occur except through one man. Except through one man. So God knows this. And so He begins to demonstrate that all of His work and all of His presence and all of His mandates and everything about Him, His image, can only be displayed through one and given to others as those who receive what that one man has in himself intrinsically because of who he is, and then we can begin and become the people of God. And so this morning, what we're going to do is begin to look at how the New Testament, and especially the Apostle Paul, portrays Jesus as the one who fulfills God's purpose. We saw that in the birth announcements, he is announced as these three things. Maybe not as specifically as you might think, but we'll look at some of that later. And so he has announced, here's the seed of the woman. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, 15. Here's the Davidic king. Remember, that is announced throughout and especially in 128 of Genesis and then specifically in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with David. And then what's the third one? 
I forgot what the third one was. What's the third one? How do you like that? I went brain dead on myself. The long-awaited Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah. So let's get into this and see. Several years after the resurrection, you remember the Apostle Paul is saved on the road to Damascus. This is several years after the resurrection. Seven, eight, ten so years after the resurrection, the Apostle Paul is saved. When you read Acts, remember, it is a 30-year history that is crunched down into 28 chapters. So it looks like two days later this happened, a week later, and the next day. Well, no, there's expanse of time in this. And so Paul is saved. And you remember through circumstances and through affliction and through attacks, Paul is rushed off, gotten out of Damascus, threw the basket and wished off into Arabia for three years. And then finally he winds up in Tarsus where he grew up and is in Tarsus for a period of about 14 years before Barnabas goes and gets him and, remember, brings him back to the church in Antioch. Remember chapter 12 and 13, we saw some of that happening in the book of Acts. So what's going on? What's going on in those years? Well, during that period of time, sometime during that period of time, and Paul talks about this in, 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 in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about it in Galatians. We'll see some of those scriptures. But during that period of time when Paul was, if you would, out of pocket, what was going on? God was preparing this apostle to bring forth the greatest revelation that had been given to man the fulfillment of the birth of Christ and the ministry of Jesus. Moses had it, you remember in the Old Testament, in shadow and types. The fulfillment is given to Paul in the New Testament. So you could say that Paul is a type of Old Testament Moses as a revelator of God's purposes. And so Paul is receiving revelation from God concerning these issues. And the revelations that he is receiving from God connects and joins who Jesus is and what Jesus does into Genesis 1 and 2. I can't imagine how it must have been for Paul to have been in that Sunday school class, if you would, sitting with Jesus and I believe face to face and having the Lord instruct Paul Paul, here's what the Old Testament says. Here's what the Scriptures say. And here's what it means. And here is what it's saying about me and how I personally and through my work fulfill all of that. Here's what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's what the result was in Genesis 3. And here's what God started to do and began to accomplish and brought it to fruition in me, in my death, in my resurrection. There's just no telling what kind of a class that was. It just had to have been mind-blowing. So Paul receives revelation. Listen to this. In Galatians 1.1 and then 11 to 12, so I'm going to skip some verses in here. Paul says this. He announces himself to the Galatian church. Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So immediately Paul tells the church, I'm an apostle. But I'm not a self-ordained or self-called or self-anointed apostle. I'm an apostle because of God's calling, because of God's gifting, because of God's anointing. And then in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, the apostle tells us concerning the revelation of the uh, Lord's Supper and some of those issues, he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, you remember this. He talks about the revelations that were given to him in these first verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's talking about these revelations. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, <coughs> he says this. So in order to keep me from being too elated or puffed up by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. So what Paul is writing and what the other New Testament writers are writing us, and I emphasize Paul more than the others because I think he deals with some of these issues more specifically than others. What Paul is writing is not his own thoughts. What he's writing here is what God has given him as a revelation concerning the meaning of the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul had to be told how that work of Christ connected to the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies so Genesis 1 and 2 can begin to be actually fulfilled and consummated in the end times. So Paul has this by revelation. The content of these revelations, the content of these revelations is called the gospel. In Romans 1.9, he's talking to the church, presenting himself, and he says, the gospel of God's Son. So what is the content? The gospel. So that means that everything about the person and work of Christ is the gospel. But it also means bigger than that, because sometimes we think of the gospel in too narrow a term. The gospel begins when? When does the gospel actually begin? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Remember? That's the beginning of the gospel. Why? Because when God created, when God began to create, He knew what would happen. He already had taken opportunity to deal with what would happen. He was already ready, and He had already planned out the solution to the problem that would occur, and He already knew what was coming. So the gospel was always in God's heart and in his mind, and in his attention, in his uh, intention, that in the message of the gospel, his work, his way, his glory would be manifested, would be transmitted to people, and would draw them in to the fulfillment of what God has done in his son. So the gospel, you see, begins back then. Now we remember that some of the activities of the gospel we began to see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Remember the first activity of the gospel? Remember the first activity of the gospel in Genesis 3, 7? Remember Adam and Eve were promised to what? In the day that you eat of it, 2, 17, you're going to die. In 3, 6, they eat. And 3, 7, they still alive. What does that mean? God's mercy, God's mercy, the gospel. Something else is going to happen in order to preserve man and to maintain man so that in man God's purpose may be fulfilled. So why do I emphasize that? Because we want to see the Bible in larger, more comprehensive, complete 
terms and as one picture rather than a whole bunch of other things happening. Therefore, this, it means this. If we were to be studying eschatology, remember that's the study of fulfillment of last things, fulfillment of prophecy and so on. Too many would go immediately to Revelation. Eschatology begins when Adam falls. Everything in the Bible from the fall of Adam to the end of Revelation is eschatological, is a looking forward to a fulfillment in the future. Everything. So it's good, okay, to look at this as an emphasis in this book and that book, but we must see the Bible as a much greater work not just these narrow, small, individual groups of stories and books, but as a massive one-volume work, if you would. So it's the gospel of his son. What does that mean? The good news. The good news that Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The good news that Jesus is God's final Adam who would fulfill all of God's mandates. The good news that God's king Jesus is God's king who would rule and reign over God's creation. This is the gospel. This is what God is doing and how God will accomplish it. So all of this demonstrates, you see, the continuity or the unity between the Old and the New Testaments. And I think in this church you're getting this, and we hopefully present that in a way, that the Old Testament is absolutely fundamental to the New Testament. Without the old, you would not have a new. And without the old, we would not have an understanding of the new. The new stands upon the foundation that was laid in the old and is the fulfillment of that foundation that is laid in the old. So we're talking about a continuity here. So let's talk about these three things. The gospel is a revelation that Jesus is the seed of the woman, that he's the final, God's final Adam, and that he's a Davidic king. Just want to go through these this morning, and that's all we'll talk about today. To, to give, us, give us, hopefully, a better comprehension and a total inclusiveness as to who this man is. So first of all, the seed of the woman. Now listen, let's listen to the revelation that Paul received about Jesus as the seed. Remember, in the book of Galatians, Paul has just told them, remember in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, I didn't get this from man, I got it directly from the Lord Jesus himself. So now he's going to give us something of that revelation. In Galatians 3.8 and 3.16, those are two important verses in Revelation concerning this issue. In Galatians 3.8 and in 3.16, Paul tells us how God has fulfilled his purpose to Abraham. Remember in Genesis 22.18, God's covenant with Abraham. And in 2218, remember, Abraham has been told by God, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac. And he says, take them, him to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him there. And so remember the three-day journey that Abraham takes to go to the land of Moriah. And Isaac is carrying the wood. It's not a little boy. It's about a 20, 25-year-old man we're talking about here. Isaac isn't a little 10-year-old baby. It's a man. And here is this man, Abraham, being told, sacrifice your beloved son. Does anybody see a picture of anything in that? The father sacrificing his beloved son. Do we see a picture in that? 
a three-day journey. Do we see something in that? And then, remember, Isaac is on the, 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 uh, the altar sacrifice, and Abraham is about to bring down the knife, and the Lord stops him, and he said, look, there's a ram in the thicket. There's a ram in the thicket. Offer that ram. Now, the interesting thing here is this. Abraham, when he's about to go up to the mountain of Moriah, do you know where the mountain of Moriah, do you anybody remember what happened years later on the mountain of Moriah? Do you remember where the temple was built and the Jerusalem and the crucifixion, Mount Moriah? You might look into some of the, 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 the cohesiveness right there. And so when Abraham's about to sacrifice his, I'm sorry, going up to sacrifice his son, what does he tell his servants? The lad and I, now people think that means 12, but you got a guy who's 100 and some odd years old. So, you know, if I'm 125 years old, Charles, you a lad, babes. You a lad. He says, the lad and I will go up to sacrifice, to worship. But what does he say? And we will return. Abraham knew the father is going to sacrifice this son, but his son will rise. What a picture even there of the New Testament resurrection. So, so don't read your Bible without seeing what God is telling us that is coming and the fulfillment in Christ and how it comes together. But once Abraham sacrifices Isaac, I'm sorry, is willing to, the Lord says this to him, confirming and restating the covenant that he had started in Genesis 12, restated in 15, and gives it again in 17 with greater elaboration. He says this in 22, 18. He says, the first, sorry, I've lost my place. Here it is. In your offspring, or seed, the word in the Greek is sperma, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So this is the verse that Paul is talking about when we get to Galatians 3, 8 and 3, 16. That's the verse. 22, 18 is the verse specifically that Paul is relating to in Galatians 3, 8 and 3, 16. You have to understand what he's talking about here. The Lord says, Abraham, in your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. Now, your Bible probably says offspring. How many of your Bible says offspring or descendants? I think it's a shame. I think it should say seed. But I, that's just the way I think why, because it says seed in Genesis 3.15. I think you can kind of travel along a little better. If you go to King James, it says seed. So you might want to at least look at King James and see the continuity. I like King James in that respect better. And so here's what Paul says. And the Scripture, look at 3.8.16. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In your seed shall all the nations be blessed, or in you shall all the nations be blessed. Here is a preaching of the gospel to Abraham in that particular context, and it's not the first time you see that. So let's make sure we enlarge our understanding of not only what the gospel is, but how long the gospel has been around. It's been around a whole long time. Then in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed or to his offspring. It does not say to seeds or offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed or to your offspring who is Christ. What is the Lord doing here? He's saying, Paul, 
In Genesis 3.15, when I said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, I was saying more than just there will be struggles and there will be combat and there will be difficulties. I was giving my people a revelation, a prophecy, a promise that someone is coming. Remember it said, and he will. Someone is coming. And Paul picks that up by revelation. He gets it by revelation. The seed here is what we call in English a collective noun. Remember what a collective noun is? It's a noun that is used either in the plural or in the singular. But when it's used in the singular, it has plural connotations. And so we say the Navy is sailing. Is the Navy singular? Yes, Navy is. How many people in the Navy? A whole lot. And so you see there is a play on words here. It has to do with the people of God as they manifest the work of God. But then in this people, this seed, these offspring of Abraham will come the seed of the woman. In this seed nation, if you would, would come this seed man who would accomplish God's purpose from Genesis 3.15. So Paul is saying Jesus is that seed of the woman. So Paul tells us that the seed of Genesis 15, 15 and the seed of Genesis 22, 18, and many other places, by the way, 22, uh, 18, are the same person of Christ, the same person. So those two verses in Galatians are very significant as to the identity of Jesus being the fulfillment of Genesis 3, 15. What are they? Genesis 3, 8 and Genesis 3, 16. Very important two verses connecting us to Genesis 3.15. I'm sorry, Galatians 3.8 and 3.16 to Genesis 3.15. Too many different words for me to say. Okay, that's the first thing. The second revelation that Paul receives is not only about the seed of the woman, but that Adam, uh, G Jesus represents Adam. Now, I'm not going to try to go back and redo all of Adam, although I do want to collect some of this on one of our last classes and pull it together. But today, just suffice it to say, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 45. You remember Paul is dealing with the issue of the resurrection and he's dealing with the issue of, of God's way of redeeming his people. And he's making a contrast and he's making comparisons here. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the apostle says this. He refers to Christ as God's last Adam. Some people say second Adam, okay, but the last Adam. He says the first man, Adam, became a living being or a living soul, your Bible may say. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he's calling Jesus the last Adam. In this, Paul tells us that Jesus is none other than the one who would fulfill what God had intended in Adam. Now, I'll, my temptation is today to go back and rehash some of that and bring, in fact, even more elaboration on it than what we have in the past. But specifically, sufficient to say is this. Adam was to be, and even the progeny, was to be God's image bearer. And as God's image bearer, Adam, remember, was given mandates in Genesis 1.28. Remember that? Multiply, be fruitful, and fill the earth. Rule over and subdue and have dominion. You remember those mandates in 1.28? So Adam is to be a king. 
a king rule and dominion. He is to be the head of a kingdom of people in whom God's image and God's purpose and power would be manifested. And then in 2.15, remember, he is given to what? Work and keep the garden. The same terminology that the Levites were given in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, to take care of the worship and take care of tending to and guarding the temple of God. So Adam was supposed to guard the temple of God. He was supposed to guard it. Guard it from what? Guard it from anything that was outside of the garden. You remember what was outside of the garden? The world was outside of the garden. The world that had not yet been, if you would, taken over and subdued by the presence of God. But there was something else outside the garden. There was a serpent outside the garden. And that serpent came into the garden. And Adam's business was to destroy or prevent or not allow that serpent to even come into the garden. But the man doesn't do that, and he allows it to come into the garden. The serpent tempts Eve. She gives the um, fruit to him, and the whole thing is finished. He was supposed to guard. He was supposed to guard the garden. He was supposed to guard his wife. He was supposed to maintain the worship and the integrity of the presence and work and the ministry of God, but he didn't do that. So in this, what do we see about this second Adam or this last Adam? Remember this last Adam who goes into the temple in John chapter 2. And what does he do? He throws out everything that is antithetical to the worship of God. This Adam is guarding God's temple and he's cleansing it from all the serpents of the world and the merchandising and the evil and the sin of the world. He's cleansing. He's protecting. He's doing what Adam should have done and so much more. And so Paul, by revelation, calls Jesus what? The last Adam. Jesus is the total in himself and by himself fulfillment that all that God and even more that God intended in the creation of Adam. So much more there, but we'll stop with that. All that Adam lost through his disobedience, because remember, the whole crux of Adam's ability to be God's image, to fulfill the three mandates, the whole crux, the whole ability for Adam to do this was based where? On his what? Obedience. Chapter 2, verses 16, 17. Remember the trees? But just don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And had Adam obeyed, some way, mysteriously, we believe that Adam would finally and his people and Eve would finally have come to a place of transformation and it would have been a people of God no longer under probation, you know, probation of don't do this, but living in the good of God's Sabbath or the rest in the presence of God forever. But he didn't obey. And so we see that that's what Jesus does through his obedience. Adam was to merit, if you would, to work, to earn this right. Now, again, I know when I say that, it bounces off us because we don't like the word earn salvation or earn anything. But this is God's way, essentially. 
Adam was given this responsibility based on his ability to obey God. And had Adam obeyed God, he would have merited before God the ability to live forever with his progeny, with his kids. But Adam disobeyed that. So what are we looking for in the last Adam? A man who will come to fulfill all that Adam was supposed to be. All and even more. But based on what? On what crucial, central issue was this man to be able to achieve all of God's purpose? The issue of his what? Obedience. Obedience. So if you take a peek, you can see in Philippians chapter 2, where the word says, and Jesus humbled himself, remember, and took on the form of a servant, not trying to grasp equality with God. I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. He doesn't do that, even though he is God the Son. And he becomes humble and obedient, even to the death on the cross. Wherefore also God has what? Highly exalted him and has given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in the heavens, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess what? That Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember those verses? In Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is the second Adam. And so you see, we have here God bringing forth another man. Another man. As Adam came forth in innocence without sin, Jesus came forth in innocence without sin. The difference between the two as far as activity is concerned that Adam sinned when tempted, yet Jesus did not sin when tempted. I'm, I'm beginning to get ahead of myself. I'm starting to go down a road I will do next time, so hold on there. Third, he's the seed of the woman, second or last Adam, and what is he third? He's God's promised Davidic king. He's a king. Now, that was promised all the way in the beginning. But we see in David, remember, an elaboration of what that is and a promise of that throne of David being fulfilled and occupied by David's, king, uh, uh, David's son forever and ever. <clears throat> so let's look at that. Although we might not immediately realize it. We don't pick it up immediately, perhaps. The word Christ, which is a title, and now it's become a name. It was a title, but it's become a name now, okay? Although Jesus is his name, it's, it's, it's part of that name identification of Jesus now in a unique way. The word title or the t word uh, Christ, title Christ declares that God, Jesus is God's promised Davidic king. Hmm. Okay, I didn't connect the word Christ to David. I didn't connect the word Christ to a Davidic king. Well, let's see what that means. The word Christ is taken from the Greek, Christos. It's a transliteration of the Greek, Christos. And the word Christos means anointed, anointed one. One who has received special favor and commission and gifting to carry out a particular function. It is anointed, a specially called, gifted, uh, prepared for, and, and uh, ministering kind of a person. In the Greek, this word anointed is taken from the Hebrew word for Messiah. So 
Christos is the Greek. It's a transliteration from the Greek into English called Christ. It means anointed. It simply means anointed. It doesn't mean Jesus and all that. It simply means anointed. Christos. But the word Christos is a translation from the Hebrew. When the Greek uh, Hebrew New Te- Old Testament was translated by, in the, by the, uh, uh, the 70 scholars, the Septuagint, in the year 250 B.C. or so, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. Why was it translated into Greek? Because Alexander the Great had conquered all of that area, and Greek became the commercial language. It became the language of the day. So the Bible was translated, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek so the people could read it. Because by that time, you remember, the dispersion had occurred, and people weren't reading the Hebrew, and they didn't know the Hebrew as well. And so they had to get something in their own language. You remember years ago when they translated and started uh, Catholic services from Latin to English. And if you remember some of that, and what happened? All of a sudden, hey, I know, now know what he's saying. I didn't know that that, that was this. You, anybody remember some of that stuff? And so when... The Greek translated the Hebrew word for Messiah. The word Messiah meant anointed. It was just a word which had to do with anointing. It translated Christos. So did we get it? The word anointed in the Hebrew is the word for Messiah. That word becomes Christos in the Greek. Why? Because the word for anointed in the Greek is Christos. And today in English, we say either Messiah from the Hebrew or or Messias, you know, that's what it is in Hebrew, or we say Christ from the Greek. So both of them mean the same. Messiah, anointed. Christos, anointed. Listen to what Daniel 9.25 says about that. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, So Daniel is prophesying that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and an anointed one will come. It is from the Hebrew Messias, even though that's not how it's pronounced, it's Meshikach, I think, something like that, and the Greek Messias. So you get the other Greek word, you get the other Greek word Christos. Therefore, Christ is the word that is used for the anointed of God. In In John 1, 41, Listen to what Andrew says. Remember Andrew who goes against Peter and says, we found the Messiah. He says this, we have found the Messiah. John then tells his readers the meaning of the word Messiah. And what does he say? Which means Christ. When the Greeks read that word Messiah, they don't, it means Christos. It means someone who's been anointed. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise? What does this have to do with that? Of Jesus as God's fulfillment of a Davidic king. By using the title Christ, Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers is asserting that Jesus is the anointed of God to be the one who will rule over his people as their king. Now, where do we get that? With this title, Jesus is being connected to God's anointing of David to be the one who will fulfill God's promise and that there will be a king to sit on David's throne. So listen to this from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter, uh, well, actually 1 Samuel. Well, let me first read 2 Samuel 12, uh, 7, 12. I will raise up for your offspring, your seed after you, who shall come bef- from your body. Matthew 1, 1, remember from 
David himself, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. So there is part of the Davidic covenant that God enters into with David in 2 Samuel 7. God says, I'm going to bring forth a seed from your loins, and that seed will be a man who will sit on your throne forever. Now, how did David, I mean, how did God accomplish this? We go back to 1 Samuel 16. Remember, the Lord takes the the kingdom from Saul because Saul has been disobedient, and he goes to the house of Jesse, the Bethlehemite in Bethlehem, and he says, hey, I'm here to anoint your son, you know, so bring them, and they bring all the sons out and all these guys, and nope, 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 nope. Don't you have any other? Yeah, well, we have this young boy over there. He's keeping the sheep. Well, bring him. And the Lord says, this is the one. And so here's what happens. 2 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel literally messiahed David. He messiahed David. It's the word for Messiah. It's the anointing of God. That man who has that special and specific work of God and mandate of God to carry out his purpose to be king. That's what's happening with David. Therefore, you see, Paul and the other writers of the New Testament use the word Christ to show that Jesus is God's promised Davidic king who fulfills Adam's mandates to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue, and have dominion. So every time we see the word Christ in the New Testament, now Paul uses this word over 380 times. Would you have thought he would do it that often? How many would have thought? Maybe 100 times. 380 times. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord, you know, he, he, what is he saying here? He's saying this is God's fulfillment of his promise that Adam would take dominion and rule from 118 of Genesis. That was given to Abraham as a promise in Genesis chapter 17, and kings will come from you. And then is given to David in a covenant relationship in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord says, your throne will not be without a man to rule over my kingdom forever. When that word Christ is used in the New Testament, every time you see it, whether it's used by Paul or whoever it is, hopefully we will now begin to connect it with all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises about the coming king and the establishment of his kingdom. So what do we see immediately in Mark or in Matthew? What is Jesus' first sermon in these two uh, um, uh, uh, gospels? Repent for the kingdom of God has come. Why is he saying that? Because he knows that he is the walking, breathing fulfillment of that great promise given to Adam, repeated in Abraham, enlarged upon and elaborated through David, and finally coming to bear in Jesus himself. So in doing so, Jesus will inaugurate God's rule, his kingdom. 
You see, the Bible is and always has been about the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth so that the heavens and the earth will become one together so that there won't be a separation of heaven and earth, but they will be one. Heaven and earth will be one, ruled by God through his man who will be the king and his people who will be, what, members of the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes to inaugurate this. So the earth will be filled with the glory of God, which fulfills what the prophet Habakkuk says. You may remember this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now next week, what we're going to begin to look at is what qualifies Jesus to be the seed, the last Adam, and the Davidic king. Begin to think. What qualifies him? Because there has to be a qualification here. There has to be something about Jesus and something about what he does that qualifies him for this. And as we're going on for the next couple of Sundays, we'll begin to look at the actual work and the accomplishment and the result of it. Thank you.